0: I'm Kay Perth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Hi Kay, great to see you. Great to see you
1: too. and am so looking forward to talking to Marco from Salesforce where having already had Kathy Baxter on the podcast before.
0: I agree. I am really looking forward to talking with him because First of all, he is a breath of fresh air. He brings so much energy to each conversation and everything he does. Uh, But I'm also looking forward to talking with him about his deep insight on actually building and deploying ethical, responsible AI and and sharing with our listeners his deep insights from years of this work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also the balance that he seems to achieve between being so positive about the uses of AI, but also remembering that you've got to use AI responsibly. It's a very, very wonderful thing to see.
0: It is indeed a rare and powerful combo. So let's dive in. Today we are so pleased to be joined by Marco Casalena, Senior Vice President of Product Management and General Manager of Einstein at Salesforce. For the past five years, Marco has managed the creation and deployment of Einstein Salesforce's underlying AI platform. Marco has also held senior positions at RingCentral, SAP, and KXEN. He also happens to be an active and engaged participant in the Equal AI Badge Program, which we run in collaboration with the World Economic Forum, and we'll hope to hear a little bit about that today. Marco also happens to be a really thoughtful and thought provoking person. So for all of those reasons, we are so glad you could join us on the show today. Marco, thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you for having
1: me.
0: To start, we'd like to ask you about your journey to your current work in the field of artificial intelligence. You appear to have a family legacy in the innovation space from what I've read, and I'm wondering if that's what sparked your interest in AI, and when along the way did it turn to a deep focus on building responsible artificial intelligence?
2: That is, that's true. Uh, my father was an operator of the UNIVAC II, Back in the day, like in 1960, he became an operator. You know, back to, and he later on uh, became an expert in expert systems. Expert systems being these like rule systems that were proto AI back in the 80s, let's say. And and you know, he got me when I was a little kid. He got me a Commodore 64, and I man, I I, I was inseparable from that Commodore 64 as soon as as soon as I got it. So I've kind of been, it's like predestined that I was going to be a, a computer person, but. Uh, and I studied artificial intelligence in college. I studied neural networks. Uh, I once made a neural net that could get a word stuck on the tip of its tongue. So that was weird. Uh, but that was all, you know, in, in college. I never really did AI professionally on, until later on, until the 2010s. Uh, and, you know, I was early on. Uh, I, when I was at Salesforce the first time, it was my second time in Salesforce, I was a developer and I worked on the the Service Cloud product, which was pretty cool. It was, you know, new and and all that stuff. But when I left Salesforce that first time, I joined a startup and you mentioned it called KXCN. It had a kind of an unfortunate name, sounded like a radio station, but uh, it was doing machine learning. It was it was basically an auto ML. Uh, what we, today we call it an auto ML. Back then we didn't really have that word for it, but it had this auto ML. It had this automated machine learning capability. And what we were trying to figure out then, 10, 11 years ago, was what are we going to do with this? What can we do with this? And what we arrived at was effectively what we eventually arrived at also with what is now Einstein, which is that we can take this automated machine learning and we can build it into these business processes, into sales processes. So you know which leads are better than others and who can I sell this product to? Into service processes, into marketing processes, who should I send this email to? Into commerce. like. Who should i recommend this stuff to so we started doing that back then at the startup Uh, we got acquired by sap and later on uh i came here to join salesforce just at the dawn of when salesforce was really seriously getting into artificial intelligence uh that became einstein
1: thank you for that and uh you mentioned einstein a few times and i wondered whether we might dig in a little deeper um, perhaps you could introduce our les- listeners to um, the product. What's the what's unique about the product? Uh, what tools and features are powered by Einstein? And um, what's the key role that AI plays in fueling or making sure that Einstein is running properly?
2: Well, Einstein is AI for Salesforce. So you know it would help maybe to start by. What is Salesforce? You know, Salesforce is a customer relationship management tool, and what that means is that it helps you track uh, your relationships with your customers from the marketing all the way at to the top of the funnel to the sales process. Now you've got somebody who's engaged who maybe is looking to buy your product and you wanna track that sale. Uh, then they've bought the product and we have uh, e-commerce capabilities in which they can buy it online as well. And then there's the customer service piece of it, service cloud, which is where you uh, go. You know, so for example, if you are uh, you have a customer service case with Southwest Airlines or DoorDash or any of these companies, that's all going through Salesforce. So despite the name Salesforce, it actually is a fairly holistic suite of products. And Einstein is AI for Salesforce. So it's AI for all these things. It's really baked into uh, all of these different processes. So. Unlike you know other companies' artificial intelligence capabilities, it's not really a general-purpose AI tool. You know you're not going to build a self-driving car in Einstein. It is specifically uh, to add intelligence to these processes that people do in Salesforce. These things that are built in, and also there are you know lots of people run their own things on Salesforce. They run billing on Salesforce. They run recruiting on Salesforce because they can also use it as a database and a workflow engine. And Einstein's also made to add intelligence to those applications that people have built on Salesforce as well. So that's really what Einstein is about. So I think what differentiates it from the rest of the market, like I said, it's not a general purpose toolkit, uh, but it also speaks to a very different type of user. Uh, Back early on in this podcast, I think it was episode six, you had Kathy Baxter, my colleague on and Kathy Baxter is our chief AI ethicist at Salesforce. And so she and I work closely together uh, on this stuff. And one of the challenges that we have, that Kathy also alluded to, is the fact that the audience that sets this stuff up, they're not necessarily super skilled in the arts of data science. I always say that Einstein is made for people who don't know an algorithm from a logger. And, and so these are Salesforce administrators. These are people who know how to set up Salesforce, they know the declarative interface, they know how to set up their custom schema and their custom workflow, and all of these things using these drag and drop tools that we have but they don't necessarily know how to code. They almost certainly don't know what an algorithm is. And these are the types of people that need to be able to enable our artificial intelligence for their users. We need to be able to understand it, to explain it. Uh, And that's really the challenge that we have is uh, presenting these things to a certain type of lay people.
0: Thank you for walking our listeners through that. And I'm so glad you brought up Kathy because Uh, Kathy Baxter happens to be someone I love talking about and listening to, learning about and from, um, a real visionary in responsible ethical AI, a colleague of yours, as you mentioned, the principal architect of ethical AI at Salesforce, and someone whom I know we both respect and enjoy working with. But it's interesting uh, that you get to have someone like a Kathy at your company, I think most of your counterparts at other companies don't have a Kathy, someone focusing on the ethical application of the tools they're building or using day in, day out. So I'd love if you could explain for us how that partnership works. Uh, how does it impact your work? Are there any immediate benefits you've seen other than just the joy of working with Kathy? Uh, are there specific problems or risks that you've been able to identify in both working with her directly or in the framework she's helped you set up? And, and how do you generally engage with Kathy in your work?
2: Yeah, well, in fact, I just talked to Kathy Baxter yesterday. Everybody loves Kathy Baxter. <laughs> uh, and it's true that we've been working together pretty closely for years on this stuff. And as I said, the central challenge is exactly the fact that, you know, when you think about explaining the concepts of bias there are all these different types of bias that might infect your ai various types of unwanted bias in there and many of them have names that data scientists use but that are not really in the general consciousness Uh, so i mean i think that the challenge that we both face is is not just explaining to our customers what these types of biases are and how to find them and how to how to root them out but putting that in the product itself designing the product itself uh, for this kind of responsibility. You know, you had Kat Joe on, I think it was like six episodes or seven episodes ago, and she talked about design for AI responsibility. But I think that she works for Spotify. And the thing is that she can design Spotify for uh, responsibility. For us, it's a, it's a sort of a second order problem because it's not exactly just that we're designing AI for responsibility ourselves, but for our customers to use and for our customers to be responsible. The strange thing about it is we're flying blind. I mean, we can't see the data that our customers are using our AI on. We have no idea what it is, Uh, unless they explicitly grant us access to debug something, and that's very, very rare. We have no idea. And so we have to design the product. We have to bake into the product uh, these concepts and make them explainable to our customers. Concepts like, for example, what I'll call second order bias, right? So like, everybody thinks, if you have a race field in there, and that comes up as, you know, you're, let's say you're making models about mortgage lending and the race field comes up as like an important factor in your mortgage lending decision, that is obviously wrong. And it would stand out, it would stick out like a sore thumb. But second order bias, like, okay, so you take the race field out, but then you have these other variables like, uh, your income range or your zip code or something that might correlate to race and actually bring that information in sideways. And we have to highlight that to our customers. We have to bring that to them somehow and explain what it is we're talking about in some coherent way. But in many cases, we don't even know what the field is called. I mean, I may call it rates. Maybe they call it something else. We have no idea. Field XYZ1 contains data that you don't want. I mean, how do you even say that? So that's the challenge that Cathy and I both face. I mean, Cathy's created these this whole five step process uh, that allows you to identify and root out the kind of bias that you might find in artificial intelligence. But it's another level then to actually encode that into your product design.
1: Marco, it's so great to have you talking about this and, and your enthusiasm for getting it right as well. And your enthusiasm of working with Cathy just comes across. And I want to build off that last question because you've been active and engaged as a participant in the Equal AI badge programme, which we run in collaboration with my group at the World Economic Forum. And we know that your time is at a premium And you've already talked about the ethical AI team at Salesforce that supports your work. So how on earth did you decide that it was worth your time to participate in the badge program? And what have been some big takeaways and would you recommend the program to others?
2: Well, I guess if I answer your question sort of backwards, I would recommend it to others. In fact, I have recommended it to others (laughs) and I hope the next cohort will include some folks that, that I recommended. Uh, I know Mary, we've been talking to some friends of mine. Uh, so nice I do recommend the program. and in part, I mean just from from a networking perspective, you know, I've been able to meet some folks who's like I've read their books right like Kathy O'Neill, I read her book and then like I actually met her in person. that was cool. you know like, what are the chances of that? Uh, like I actually use her metaphors all the time because she she does a really good job of describing how machine learning actually works in a way that like senators can understand and stuff because I know she testifies before the Senate and stuff like that. So uh, I do think that it's, it's interesting and useful to meet some of these people that I, that I follow myself, uh, but also I think it's interesting to keep a pulse on what everybody's talking about. I mean, I think you folks uh, like you, Miriam and, and UK are, are much closer to uh, the policy side of the house, which I am not, right? I'm very much on the technology side. I talk to my customers all the time. And of course, you know, GDPR was a big move for us, right? I had like two teams devoted to GDPR for like a year to make that work, to make it to make our AI respect uh, these regulations, that and CCPA. Now these new EU AI proposed regulations are coming along the pike, uh, and these are things that we have to stay abreast of. People that are professionals in this field, you definitely have to stay abreast of that. Uh, at the same time, I mean, I I feel like I have something to add to the conversation in the sense that I'm coming from a slightly different angle than most. Uh, these kinds of second order problems that. I've been involved with uh, like those that I just described, but also the fact that in many ways we are sort of on the cutting edge. We have Salesforce research and Salesforce research is doing a lot of really interesting research in various directions, including things like natural language generation, which is going to pose the next generation of ethical quandaries. Uh, No pun intended, really.
0: Well, and I'd love to take that a step further. I think we're very fortunate today to talk to somebody who is fortunately interested in the concepts, but also who works in this field of AI day in, day out, uh, building it, uh, overseeing its, its production, and also maintaining this lens of trustworthy, responsible AI. So to help some of our listeners understand what it is that you're confronting or trying to avoid, Could you give us some idea of what are some of the major AI risks that you've encountered or that are top of mind as to what you'd like to avoid as you build and deploy these systems?
2: Okay, well, let's think about it today and tomorrow. I mean, if we think about that in terms of today, today, what a lot of what Einstein does today is what we would call structured machine learning. So you have this structured database in which you're storing your data about marketing about sales or about service and and those kinds of things and when you're doing structured machine learning there are certain types of biases that can come in that come from your data that come from your own history you know it once happened that so for example early on this is like five years ago when we first introduced the first einstein thing lead scoring we had these pilot customers that were setting it up and there was one of these customers that said hey Your lead scoring thing is broken because we had our little explainability console. They were just explaining what it had learned from your leads. Leads are like at the top of the funnel. These are people who might be interested in your product that you're reaching out to. And the number four uh, feature in there, the number four most most influential factor was uh, lead salutation equals mister. So basically it had learned that there was this correlation between if the lead salutation equals mister then they were more likely to convert that lead and sell to that person, and yeah, in a way they were right. Right, our lead scoring was a little bit broken, and you know we we actually exclude that. It did not occur to us before that that was sort of PII. We should exclude that. We did, but that also pointed out something in their business that had nothing to do with us. Right, the fact was that they were preferentially converting the leads that were meant and so those are the kinds of things. These weird little pernicious biases that you might not ever notice uh, unless you make a machine learning model. And so you make these structured machine learning models and these things start to kind of pop out of the woodwork. But again, our challenge is, the challenge that I face with Kathy and with the, the Einstein team is, how do we expose these to people? How do we do that at scale? I mean, we have millions of users now and we can't just talk to every single one of them and they're not gonna read our blog either. So how do we do that in the product? Now, if we look forward a little bit, and I kind of alluded to this a moment ago, natural language generation is already happening i mean anybody who uses gmail right now Mm -hmm. can see that it's like completing their sentences or google docs now even where's that coming from who's writing that what is the providence of that exactly and who gets to use that and my wife is a my wife is a refugee and asylum attorney and she helps settle people from all over the world but a lot of her clients I mean, they speak languages like Mom, which is like an indigenous language around Guatemala, or she has a lot of folks right now from Afghanistan who speak Pashto or they speak uh, Dari. Uh, Do these things work in those languages? I mean, are these people just completely excluded from these capabilities because they speak, you know, languages that are not very widespread? So, I mean, that's one potential ethical quandary that's going to be coming at us real soon is this kind of inclusivity of these types of uh, helper features that are showing up more and more. But these things that are today helpers, these things, uh, well, today, Gmail is completing your sentence. Tomorrow, it's going to write the whole email. But if that's the case, you know, who wrote that email? When GitHub Copilot writes code for you, generates code for you, who wrote that code? Where did that come from? You know, what licenses did the source code that it came from have? And do you have to respect that? So it's going to be a whole new dimension. Of ethical quandaries, and it's starting now.
1: Absolutely, and um, and that was so beautifully explained, and with such passion. Um, and I I I agree that there are all these ethical problems, but there's also, for somebody who's a sort of literature scholar, just the fact that um, these uh, the computers tend to sort of reduce the language to a few words. Mm-hmm. And we will be, our language will be a lot less rich um, unless we watch that as well. So next question. Um, Through the badge program, we sort of noticed you as an AI optimist um, and your enthusiasm about AI innovation. We're seeing that today and we've seen it whilst you've been working with us. What are some of the technological advances for Einstein and elsewhere that you're most excited about? why
2: well I am a techno optimist and I and I try not to be what what Kathy O'Neill calls a techno chauvinist <laughs> uh, you know which is where so there's a difference between optimism like yes I think this is going to work out and chauvinism like technology is the solution to all problems everywhere you know uh, so I, I try not to, to fall into the latter the latter camp uh, but I am really excited about uh, what is going on right now in the world of transform models so these things that are behind that gmail autocomplete uh and many of you probably have heard of gpt3 as well uh things like that and we have some models like that at salesforce uh they're called transformer models and they can do some really interesting things uh and they're getting better and better i mean really really quickly these things they didn't even exist until late 2018 and now look how widespread they already are and how invisible they already are so i mean i guess the things that I'm most excited about, well, I'm very excited about this whole generation possibility, right? The the ability to generate language, to generate code, to generate images. You see a lot of uh, natural image generation as well, which is fascinating, and it's advancing really, really quickly uh, to such a degree that even I have a hard time keeping up with it all. You know, I watch like two minute papers on YouTube, but every day, every day, it's something new. Uh, So I'm really excited about that, and I'm also excited about the increasing invisibility of artificial intelligence. I mean, not to belabor the point with the Gmail thing, but most of you probably don't even notice the fact that it's completing your sentences anymore. You don't even think about it. You know, you just dip right by, you use it, though. And that's happening more and more, Siri on your phone, and, of course, within Salesforce, Einstein. I mean, we have millions of users of Einstein in Salesforce today. Most of them probably have no idea they're even using Einstein. It's just there. That's just how it works. Uh, but you know more and more, that means it raises the question, what does ethical AI mean when the AI is invisible? You know, that's, the, that's the challenge.
0: So well said. and it's, you know, as it's striking me for every ch- challenge concern you're flagging, uh, it's part of a beneficial invention, innovation. And like you said with, with these uh, auto-complete sentences, it certainly expedites our work. It helps you slog through the responses in the email inbox. And so you have time for more thoughtful projects, writing, that sort of thing. On the other hand, who's being excluded in that writing? Uh, I'll, I noticed that when I write hello or dear, it will give me the language that uh, the, the name it recognizes. If it's a name, it doesn't. If it's a name from another country, oftentimes it will not offer that as an um, and. And Siri, I, I wouldn't get half of my texts out if I wasn't able to talk into it. On the other hand, some of the language choices Siri uses is um, uh, uh, quite concerning. And so uh, it could get me uh, written up somewhere. If uh, That's certainly a harm that we need to be accounting for. Um, but obviously much more dire concerns um, if people are not represented, if they are not uh, part able, able to participate in this, in this innovation. Um, and so we know that you are really involved in so many ways including writing articles to kind of spread your lessons learned and your knowledge on this topic One article you wrote was, What You Need to Know to Implement a Foolproof AI and Automation Strategy, where you discuss the inevitability of AI and automation, and you provide really helpful tips. You break down how businesses can use AI and automation tools in very thoughtful ways that ensures impact, ensures it's being put to best use, um, and and ensures that they're being responsible in, in how they're implementing. Can you share with us some of the tips that you offer in that article and otherwise?
2: Absolutely, I can. And to some degree, I will say that some of what I covered in that article is very similar in a way to what Kathy O'Neill talks about in her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, uh, which is really explaining how machine learning works and how it doesn't work. Uh, you know, people have this tendency to think of artificial intelligence as if it were an oracle, as if it could just learn everything. And That's not really how it works. The reality is that it will learn a certain subset Of information but there are always rules there are always rules that you put around it you know Kathy O'Neill's metaphor that she uses is she says I could use a machine learning model to learn what my family likes and then when it goes when when it's time to make dinner you know I mentioned to you that I I cook for my family here a lot and uh, you know when it's time to make dinner yeah she could make everybody pop-tarts right because everybody likes pop-tarts and her model has learned that everybody loves pop-tarts that's great But there are always rules right and some of those rules are like pop-tarts don't necessarily give you optimal nutrition fiber and stuff like that no offense to pop-tarts i love them too (laughs) Uh, you know so there are these rules so a machine may learn this kind of naive representation of the world uh that is a little bit binary and you need to put these rules in there and that's the role of the human is to put these rules these thresholds in there that sort of clarify what the artificial intelligence is giving you, and make it into a useful result. But beyond that, if you think about what the machine actually generally outputs, you know, if I'm thinking about like back to the dinner example, to, to believe her Kathy O'Neill's point, uh, you know, what that would give me, by the way, it would give me your family has a 90% chance of liking pop tarts. So it doesn't even really spit out. Uh, When you ask a yes or no question, you don't get a yes or no, you get a probability. When you ask for a recommendation, you get a list of them with probabilities. And so it's up to you as a human to determine the thresholds beyond which a probability is significant. And that's really a lot of the work that people have to do with artificial intelligence. So I think that it's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that the machine doesn't just act unguided. I mean, you do have to often prepare a lot of data for it. In the case of Einstein, the data preparation thing is not such a big deal because it's already here it's already here in salesforce so we have that advantage at our disposal but the rules thing is still a thing for us and we have this whole thing called einstein automate which is this set of rules that you can put around artificial intelligence to do exactly what i'm saying to clarify those results and make sure that what you're outputting to uh the person is sensible now again if we shift our lens to the tomorrow and back to the whole natural language generation thing this kind of still applies, right? Your natural language, let's say that you're making your product descriptions now, you're generating your website with natural language with this, you know, GPT-3 or something like that. Well, you are still gonna have to eyeball that today because it's gonna look really good. Uh, it probably will make grammatical sense, but is it really what you want to say? Uh, or is it saying something that you really don't want to say as you kind of alluded to with Syria and that's happened to me before too. I dictated something into Syria and I was like, oh no, no 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 that is not what i was trying to say so you do have to supervise it Uh, and that's that's basically what i'm saying i think in that uh that harvard business review article
1: that's wonderful thank you marco and you know obviously you've talked about kathy o'neill you've talked about kathy baxter you offer reference um thought leaders in the ai space and and obviously the two i've mentioned inspire you but do you have other um people that inspire you that you would share with us so that we can go off and be inspired as well
2: you know i really liked uh kevin ruse's book future Proof. kevin ruse is a reporter for the new york times and i met him you know in that capacity but prior to that i read his book and i was like this guy has got his finger on the pulse. And this book is about, you know, AI is changing things. And we've talked about it here. You know, in many ways, AI is changing things now, and it's going to change things in the future. And that's going to, you know, there are going to be some jobs that will disappear, and there are going to be new types of jobs already. New types of jobs are being created, like conversation design. is a whole job category now that was not, like, didn't exist like that years ago. Uh, so Kevin Ruse's book, Future Proof, I think really covers a lot of, like, What is going to survive? What's not going to survive? And and uses sort of historical examples from uh, the Industrial Revolution uh, as evidence. So I found that to be uh, very interesting. Yeah, a lot of the other folks that I follow are also part of this equal AI, this equal AI thing. So uh, you know, a lot of the folks that uh, are have been on this podcast before. uh, I'm sure you've had Natasha Crampton on here uh, before, and as you know, Kathy O'Neill, Kathy Baxter. I mean, geez, you, you would think I have a soft spot in my heart for people named Kathy.
0: <laughs> Some AI will pick up on that. <laughs> All your messages are going to be, dear Kathy, from now on.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Which spelling will be uh, dispositive?
2: That's right. They spell it differently.
0: It's yep, true. Yep, mixing it up. Uh, well thank you for for sharing your inspiration and you know you'd mentioned earlier the eu ai regulations that are forthcoming we've talked about u.s legislation uh forthcoming on the books that what's applicable uh civil rights laws how they're applicable and i'm curious as somebody like you who is deep in the building and and deployment of ai Um, When you are talking, if you were to be talking to lawmakers, uh, how would you tell them that they could be helpful in supporting your work and how you're putting your systems into place? Is there a role that they play that could support what you're doing? Is there a role they could play that you would not want them to play, where they could impede what you're doing? Um, For instance, having more consistent requirements for transparency and explainability, making sure that those you are... Partnering with or in competition with uh, have some of the same rules you do. Are there ways that policymakers could support the important work you're doing?
2: I guess what I would say to that is, please make it make sense. You know that is. I think policymakers broadly tend not to understand what this is, and and the fact is, it's true. Machine learning and what that means, what AI means is changing very rapidly. I mean, I've alluded to it multiple times and it's about to change again. What we mean by AI is gonna change dramatically in the next couple of years. Uh, So when policymakers make these policies, uh, I would hope that they would be cognizant of how machine learning actually works and what is actually feasible. You know, if we think back uh, five years ago or six years ago to GDPR, uh, and I did have a large team that was devoted to making GDPR a reality, making GDPR compliance, work within Einstein. We're pretty serious about that. and In fact, that's a competitive advantage for us is that, you know, people who are using Einstein get that GDPR compliance, relatively speaking, for free. But there are parts of GDPR that even today are kind of a gray area. For example, let's say that you exercise your GDPR right to be forgotten. And so you've, you've exercised that. And that means that I have to delete everything I know about you. And We most certainly do that. But now let's say that I have a long-running model, and I retrain these models on a certain schedule. Let's say they're every three months or every six months that I might retrain a given model. And within this model, well, I built it before I forgot you. And to actually retrain this model could take days or weeks, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so if you exercise your right to be forgotten, and this is still today a gray area, and I am running a model that was built at the time that I still remembered you, Uh, do I somehow have to make the model forget that little bit of you that it might remember Uh, that is a weird challenge you know and it's not really feasible to retrain all your models every time somebody executes their right to be forgotten that's that is just not going to happen so we kind of need answers to those kinds of questions and I would hope that those answers would come more in the text of the policy than through the judicial system you know that's not where you want to test these laws. You don't want it to go all the way through court. That introduces a lot of risk, a lot of cost, a lot of delay, and, you know, the ground is shifting under it. So I guess my point and my, my request of policymakers is please do your best to understand the technology as much as you can and write these laws and these policies as clearly and in as much detail as you possibly can to avoid these kinds of gray areas and make sure that the things that you are recommending or demanding make sense and are
0: feasible. And very interesting. You're saying that um, on top of mine is Meghna Sinha from Verizon, who had a very similar statement on our recent episode where she said ignorance is not an option. You are in charge of the rules and regulations of some of the forces having the most impact on us, social media and so forth. You may not understand it. You absolutely have to understand what it is you're ruling over with your regulations.
1: Absolutely. and although Miriam and I are both lawyers, um, we do agree with you that it would be better for legislators to get it right first time um, instead of uh, providing fields that we lawyers can plow. Um, So sadly, we're coming towards the end of our podcast, um, but we have one final question that we ask everybody. And I'd be really interested to know If you had a magic wand to request one wish to achieve responsible ai what would that wish be
2: the one thing that i would definitely wish for is the greater socialization the greater popularization of things that explain what ai really is to people Uh, and and by that i do mean kathy o'neil's book weapons of mass destruction i do mean kathy baxter's blog posts and and, and all of these kinds of things, there is a wealth of information out there that really tells people how this really works, how this thing really works. But I feel like still it's, it's very little known. It's little known among the general population. It's certainly little known among uh, our policymakers, And that's what creates these kinds of problems. It's not just artificial intelligence. I mean, you see it also, for example, with cryptography where there are lawmakers that are demanding a back door to the public key algorithm. The math does not work that way. <laughs> like, there's no such thing as a backdoor that doesn't work that way, you know? And so uh, things like that, when I see them in policy, I think, oh no, uh, you know, with machine learning too, the math does not work that way. And so there are these fundamental truths that exist that, you know, I would love for more people to understand.
0: Great answer, so many great answers. Marco, thank you for joining us today, for sharing your insights and letting us get a glimpse into your AI world.
2: Thank you again for having me.
0: Well, Kay, as we thought, Marco came full of energy and great ideas. What were some of the big takeaways for you?
1: I think the first thing that you have to talk about is his enthusiasm and passion for the work that he does um, and for the responsible AI component. I think the other things that really stood out for me were um, his, his conversation about second-order problems and also giving us some examples, you know, the lead scoring that um, actually when you look deeply enough you see those small biases that you would never have seen unless you were actually using AI. And I think that that's important because we talk a lot about bias and AI, but sometimes AI can actually help us find biases that we would never have picked up as human beings. So that discussion about, you know, you have to to bring a human being to look at this, um, but sometimes the AI will find you something novel.
0: Yeah, he did do such a great job of the balance of both uh, sharing his enthusiasm for all the way that AI can create efficiency and benefit us, uh, but also pointing out that, you know, each of those benefits has a flip side. And uh, even if it's, you know, not thinking, as you pointed out, as creatively about how we're writing and how we're communicating uh, to the much more harmful problems he's brought up about uh, you know, favoring one gender over another, being exclusionary when we're talking about people from different nationalities or who speak languages other than English. Um, so yeah, I was really taken, as always am, by his enthusiasm and energy, uh, but I also am impressed with and take his point, his repeated attention to the human. Um, both in how the human will be impacted by that benefit, whether it's the employee who benefits from the efficiency of Einstein or other AI innovations, um, but also the human uh, part- participant, the human uh, non participant, those who are involved in the data, those who will be downstream affected. Um, and his commitment to keeping humans in the loop throughout the creation of AI to try and identify those harms and problems along the way and maintain the efficiency and innovation benefit side, reducing the harms and unexpected, unpleasant, and and potentially uh, really problematic surprises if humans are not maintained in the loop.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that was interesting and encouraging for you and I is, you know, we're beginning to hear this, this theme throughout these podcasts. So people are saying we need, su- we need legislators to understand this better so that we can have good legislation. And, and definitely, you, as you were saying, it's not an option not to understand what's happening because it has such fantastically good options for the world, but also it comes with some really bad things that we need to be worrying about and that legislators need in their role as representing us to get the handle on and to perhaps upon.
0: Absolutely, you know, the way he described, it was interesting, his role at Einstein of building this program, this model, and trying to imagine where the biases will pop up and even how to communicate to the consumer or client not having a vantage point into their actual use. It actually struck me that that could be a parallel for how government is involved in AI, that they are building these foundations and frameworks that will be applied in settings, in systems that they will actually never see. Um, And so we could learn a lot from his approach. Uh, Some of the lessons that he gives to business I think would also be very helpful in the policy world. Um, And while I think it is a challenge for those in policy to stay abreast of all these innovations and developments. As he said, there are so many leaders out there who are taking the time to break down what is happening in AI, what we need for people to understand in terms of how they're regulating, what some of the positives and negatives are of policy proposals, uh, so that it does not have to be this mystified area that people cannot understand or, uh, or, or engage with, that, Um, As we get to this point where they're going to have to engage, it's helpful to be reminded that there are so many out there writing, speaking, publishing, Marco, Kathy O'Neill, as he mentions, Kathy Baxter, the World Economic Forum, us and others who are trying to make sure that there is a partnership uh, so that this can be done with both sides really connecting and speaking to one another
1: absolutely and it'll be so wonderful as we move forward this year to have legislators from the united states and the uk on the podcast It will. so looking forward to to that as well
0: i am too all right thank you Kay. that was fun and i'm looking forward to the next one
1: likewise <laughs> subscribe to or download our podcast on spotify apple podcasts google play or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.
0: And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.